if you want to make uh, a muscle in the body get stronger, you have to stress it at the right dose and then let it rest and recover, and then it gets stronger. Um, if you apply too much stress without enough rest, you get injured. And if you don't apply enough stress, the muscle doesn't grow. So it's the right amount of stress followed by the right amount of rest equals growth. In, in exercise science, um, this is called progressive overload or periodization. And it is the gold standard way for training. Um, what's fascinating is that the brain works very, I mean, the brain is the body. So the, if you think of the brain as a muscle, the brain works the same way. Um, so the way that you develop uh, creative capacity, intellectual capacity, even research shows emotional capacity is very much the same. You have to stress yourself. So take on challenges that make you uncomfortable, rest and recover from those challenges. And that's how you get better. Um, this works on both very small micro time cycles as well as more macro ones. So the example I love for micro is the vast majority of creative thoughts don't occur when we're actually doing the work. They occur when we're like in the shower or on a walk. So if you think about it, that's just stress plus rest equals growth. Like you throw yourself into the work, that's the stress. And then you step away, you shower, you take a nap, you exercise, your brain is resting. And then growth is like you have the aha insight. And then on a much longer horizon, as we grow in our careers, we take on challenges. They seem impossible. We get through them, sometimes with a lot of help. And then we come out the other side, generally after a period of rest and reflection, wiser and more able to take on the next challenge. On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and today I'm honored to welcome Brad Stolberg. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me, Lori. Oh, well, thank you for joining us. And um, I definitely have read your book previously, Peak Performance, and you have another book, The Passion Paradox. And so there's lots of stuff here to talk about, much more than we have time for, but we'll go as deep and uh, wide as we can. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you down the path to actually write peak performance. It's such a, a fascinating turn on looking at uh, performance. I really enjoyed it. So my, my path to that book and really to writing more broadly has been a pretty circuitous one. Um, it's funny, when I was way back in the day when I was in high school, I really wanted to be a writer. And I applied to um, the journalism school at Northwestern, which is like the most prestigious, best journalism school in the country. And I didn't get in. And like any other 17-year-old, I'm like, oh, guess I'm not going to be a writer. Um, so I went to school for other things. And out of college, I spent time in management consulting. I was very interested in healthcare. I did a short little gig working for the federal government um, back when Obama was a brand new president. And um, I was a very driven hard worker and I basically worked myself into burnout. And um, I was pretty fortunate that I had been planning to leave the workforce to go back for a graduate degree in public health anyways. 
And I'd say about three months before that break was going to happen, um, both my mental and physical health um, were really in a little bit of a hole just from straight up overwork. Mm. Um, so pause there. I go to graduate school and study public health. And in addition to um, like sick care and treating sick individuals, I became very interested in a more holistic full definition of health. So not just the absence of disease, but also what does it really mean to thrive? And um, in addition to what does it mean to thrive, uh, how can you perform your best? Because I think that when you are on top of your game and everything's clicking and you're engaged in pursuits that you enjoy and you're getting good feedback and you're contributing to the world, that helps how we would traditionally think about health. And if you don't have a solid base of physical, emotional, social health, it's very hard to perform well. Um, so I started to see the integration of these two things and it was always on my mind, still had not really been writing out of public health school, um, went to work for a large healthcare system, doing some leadership development work with their physicians. Um, but this was about, oh, 10 years ago at the time when blogs were just coming online and everybody had a WordPress blog. And I was also getting into endurance sports back then. So like every other triathlete or runner, I had to have a blog, <laughs> even though no one read the blog with the exception of me, like not even my wife read this blog, but it was a regular writing practice. Um, and um, I guess after a little while, a few people did start reading the blog and I started to get offers to write for very small publications. And then over time, larger and larger publications, um, eventually to the point where I felt confident to, uh, to pitch a book to a publisher. Um, and, and that's, I guess that's the journey up to the book, the first one. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe... And I should say, I have a co-author. I wrote it with um, uh, my collaborative partner, Steve Magnus, who has a different circuitous path. Um, he comes from more of an athletic background. Uh, he coaches elite runners. And the two of us um, hooked up over a lot of common ideas and decided that uh, it would be neat to team up to do it. Yes. And you also publish your book pretty quickly. If I look at the dates right and boom, 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 you're within a rapid fire pace. Yeah, we did it quickly. <laughs> I think it helped that there were two of us. And it's funny, people ask how long did it take to write peak performance? And I say, it really depends. You could argue I had been writing it and Steve had been writing it for 15 years in our brains, mm -hmm. or you could say that we did it in four months. Mm -hmm. So from like actually getting a book deal to a book, it was probably about four months, but we had had notes and conversations. I and mean, these are things that we had just thought about for such a long time um, prior to the book. Mm -hmm. And again, really at the intersection of, you know, there's so much out there in and particularly four years ago, the pendulum is starting to swing maybe, but it's still got a long way to go. But there's so much out there in the um, self-improvement, self-development, personal growth space that uh, I like to call bro science. <laughs> so it tends to be like a lot of dudes with all kinds of complex jargon offering like, you know, these hacks and silver bullet fixes to make one healthy. Um, and that stuff generally doesn't work. Right. So there wasn't an evidence-based book aimed for the young professional that did want to be a peak performer and wanted to work really hard, but also wanted to value things like sleep mm 
and the importance of rest and understand that solid mental health is very important. And if you're just constantly grinding, you don't get that. Um, Steve had an experience with burnout as a runner. So Mm -hmm. both of us also had these experiences where um, we were really good at pushing, but not so great at taking care of ourselves. Um, So when we first wrote the book, we we kind of set out to write it to our younger selves. What do we wish that we would have known? So for those because I understand as a physician, I went to medical school with three little kids. I was in the military. I'm, I can even tell you about my schedule now, but I do, I agree. It's so very important, the health, real health, not just pretend. Can you tell us what burnout looks like? Because I think a lot of people don't even understand that they may be suffering burnout. They just think that life is just like this. This is the, what we signed up for on this earth. And so can you describe maybe what that is? So someone maybe might be able to recognize it. For sure. So uh, the, the way that I like to think about burnout is it is um, a feeling of emotional and physical exhaustion and apathy for something that you once cared deeply about. Um, another way to think about it, particularly with digital devices that I find um, lots of people resonate with, is when you're not working, you feel compelled that you should be working. But when you are working, you wish that you weren't working. So it's kind of like this dark cloud of, am I doing enough? Do I need to be pushing harder? That's always following you. And then what ends up happening is when you're off of work, supposed to be connecting with your family or friends or having fun, part of your brain is still at work. So you never really get that presence and the unplug. And when you're at work, you're always feeling drained because you're never really not at work. And we have these superpower computers that we carry in our pockets, like e.g. our cell phones, that facilitate this behavior. Um, So that, that, that those two things are like a combination of those two things to me is kind of like the, the bullseye for this, this individual could be struggling from burnout or suffering from burnout. Um, There are all kinds of other symptoms, Um, low level chronic distress. Um, So not, I wouldn't say like an acute anxiety that looks very different, but just the feeling that like you always have to be either working or at work or thinking about it. And again, that eventually leads to fatigue, which is where the apathy comes in. Um, Literally, you just kind of burn out. You think of a runner or a weightlifter constantly exerting a muscle and it feels really good at first, and then it starts like to hurt, that could be like the distress phase, and then eventually it just gets tired and just says, I don't care. Mm. Um, And that's kind of the path that we take our mind-body systems on um, as we go down the road of burnout. Boy, there's so much there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, okay, you've worked with physicians, you coach physicians, I've read this on your your uh, website, which is bradstelberg.com, by the way, for those who are listening, we'll put links. Um, so when you sign up for medical school, I'm going to, I'm going to make this more personal, I guess, for just a second. Yeah. And um, I, I, I love talking to people. Well, I mean, you're well past it, but for those that are listening, maybe you said your daughter is in medical yeah, school. She's a third year. So maybe you'll get her to listen. So my younger yeah. brother's a resident. Um, ah. so like that's fresh and my best friend in the world is, um, a doctor. So like, I, I love the medical school talk. <laughs> 
because you guys don't really practice what you preach very well. No, 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 we don't. No, no, we don't. <laughs> I can make you stories and make you probably just go, oh my Lord. <laughs> um, yeah. So when you enter medical school, you almost like, it's almost reminds me of when I signed a contract to join the military and I was deployed and like, you're just, you just, this is what you got to do, right? You just do what you got to do to survive. And you go through this survival mentality for so long, you forget what a normal life is. So when you're not at work and you're not thinking about patients, I mean, it's like you go on vacation, you worry about patients. And so you're in medical school, you're worried about the tests, and then you're worried about residencies, and you're worried about a job, and then you're worried about, can I have a family? Can I be a mom? <laughs> There's so much that, you know, and I'm, of all my, you know, I have so many dear friends that are mom doctors, especially, because I think, not to say that the men who are physicians don't commit to their families, but I'm sorry, but motherhood's a different level of, it's just different. <laughs> and so I'm just curious, what do you tell these poor physicians, especially these young ones who are coming up, maybe those who are listening, what should they be doing to bring some balance when there's so many demands, you know, on the career for you to do this? And literally life and death decisions are being made. Yeah. And so um, it can be, I mean, it is something like you just, you just can't, ex you don't know what it is until you experience it. And then you just don't know how to break from it when you do have time off. <laughs> That's a good one. So I'm, I'm, I'm not a physician. Um, but like you said, I am really privileged that I, I get to coach and work with a lot of physicians. Um, and this is something that comes up for, for all of us. So I think the, the first thing is to realize that you are in a really neat position where you have um, a craft or a practice that you really care about. And that's great. A lot of people never get that. A lot of people aren't worried about burnout because from day one, their job feels like they're going through the motions. So when you really care about something, it is on the one hand, a tremendous blessing because it lights you up. It gives your life meaning. It becomes a part of your identity. Um, again, like medicine is a practice. You are on this ongoing path to master this craft that helps other people. That's awesome. It's a blessing and it's a curse because the curse is once you're on that path, it's very easy to have these blinders and not see anything off of it. And as you said, when the stakes are so high, you're dealing with people's lives, um, just turning off a switch and being like, oh, like nine to five, now I'm home. It doesn't work like that. So the first thing that I do with my physicians, I noticed that you said balance. I cannot stand the word balance. Mm. Um, so I think that the way that we think about balance here in America is doing lots of things in equal proportion. And because it's like America, you have to be great at all of them. So when physicians come to me, especially women physicians, and they want to be balanced, I ask them what that means. And they say that they want to be the best doctor, the best mom, the best community member. If they're involved in a, like a religious, they want to go to church every Sunday. Um, they want to run half marathons and they want to be great at all these things. And you simply can't. Um, so the first thing that I do with my doc, and men experience this too, for sure. It's not just women. The first thing that I do with my docs is I get them to stop thinking about balance and I get them to say, what are the things in your life that you really care about? And let's throw balance out by the wayside. You don't have to be great at everything. You don't have to watch Lord of the Rings or Tiger King. Like there's nothing, there's no one's going to slap you on the wrist if you don't do that. Um, and for a lot of people, it's just one or, you know, one, two, three things. Mm -hmm. For um, a young single person, it might just be like, I want to be the best doctor in the world. Mm -hmm. 
that's fine for a period of time. So long as you have self-awareness and you realize that, hey, you're sacrificing dating, you're sacrificing, um, I try not to let anyone sacrifice physical health and we'll get to that in a second. Um, but this first thing about balance is get rid of balance and instead think about what are my priorities and how do I have enough self-awareness so I realize when I'm not living my life in alignment with those priorities. Hmm. And it can shift, there are seasons for everything. When you're a young doctor and you don't have kids, the priorities look very different when you're a doctor with three kids. And when your kids are four, seven, and 10, it probably looks very different than when your kids are 18, 20, and 25. Mm -hmm. um, so it is this constant, like understanding the context of your life, knowing what you really care about, being okay with not really giving a crap about anything else. And then amongst those things that you care about, setting really strict boundaries. Um, so that's the first thing that I'd say, not easy. Uh, the second thing around health is switching from a view of being a phenomenal, um, like what I call in my coaching practice, an acute performer to a long-term or a chronic performer. So if you want to be the best physician for a year, you should probably never sleep, spend no time taking care of your health. Don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about connecting socially and just work 24 seven. And you might win the gold medal that year, but I can almost guarantee you that five years down the road, if you're still practicing at all, you probably won't be a very good doctor. Right. So it's just about shifting from the short-term performance to a long-term performance. And you see this in athletes all the time. Athletes with great careers, they train really hard, but they have boundaries and they rest and they're multifaceted. Otherwise they get overuse injuries. And all of us can get overuse injuries. You don't have to be a runner to get an overuse injury. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the marriage of those two things. It's figuring out what you're really caring about and not worrying about things that you don't and being authentic and true to yourself because that frees up a ton of time and energy. Mm -hmm. And then amongst the things you care about, knowing that it's not going to be comfortable, but I am setting this boundary. And that, mm -hmm. that boundary might be like digital devices are off at seven. And I have this conversation with doctors because it's real. And it depends on, again, so if you're, let, let me pause. If you're a transplant surgeon, your device might need to be on after seven. Right. So if you are somebody that is on call mm -hmm. on that day, your device has to be on. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're not, it can still be really helpful in any given day to be able to respond to a patient email or if somebody that is covering calls you about a patient. And this is the really hard conversation. There are going to be times that your phone is off and you miss something that could have really helped someone. Mm. It is going to suck in that moment. But over the course of a career, you will help more people if you have that boundary. Mm -hmm. And especially for somebody that has been a workaholic nonstop, once you start changing your behavior, you get worse before you get better because you're doing less work. You're online less. But again, to have a long career, there has to be some boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I am not in favor of medicine becoming like, it's funny because I'm like at the very oldest of the millennial and mm -hmm. like, you know, doctors and maybe your cohort, they look at us and they're like, ah, these people just think medicine's like a nine to five job. They wanted, they might as well go work at the gap. I am, I, I am not in favor of that at all. And I don't think many millennials are actually like that. I think they care deeply too. Um, so by no means am I saying that like medicine should just be like any other job. It's not, it's like a sacred practice. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just that to make it last a long time, you do have to have some boundaries. No, I mean, that makes complete sense, right? So you're just, you're just telling someone to have healthy boundaries. So 
their stress at work doesn't infringe upon their personal stress and destroy everything. I, I see it as that. So I went to medical school. I, my kids were five, three and 10 months when I started medical school. Oh. And um, yeah, yeah. I have a very, a very, my husband. But maybe that, I, I mean, you tell me, maybe that gives you other perspective too. Cause I feel like once you have kids, like we have a young kid, you like start to hold things a little bit more lightly because like you just can't control everything. You've got kids. But medical school is also really hard, and three kids is a lot more than the one that I have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, Emily and I started medical school and kindergarten the same day, and um, so I, I just had a really supportive spouse, and I think that's one thing for sure. We always made sure, and we're actually it's our twenty seventh anniversary today. Oh, cool! Congratulations. <laughs> and so I, I think that's a big part is that communication, right? And we invested in our relationships with our family. And when I was home, cause my grandmother lived with us during that time, she had a stroke, she had breast cancer. You would not believe the amount of craziness that was going on, but we always held a foundation to our family and our faith. So th I think that was really cute. And when I was with my family, I'm present with my family. And I think that is just something we learned and I had valued that so much going into medical school. So I didn't have to worry about, I always knew my family, I always wanted to be a mom. I always want to be a doctor, but being a mom was more important. So for me, even in medical school, my kids were, and my family were my number one. And so you're just like that. When I studied, I was studied after they went to bed because yeah. that's just what I had to do. And now, another I, thing, another thing that I think is really important in, in medicine or, or, or um, really any field is there's no right or wrong answer. The only wrong answer is going on autopilot. So to some mm. person, being a physician or being an artist or whatever it is might be more important than being a mom or a dad. Right. Absolutely. I'm glad I, that I'm not that person's kid, but like maybe that person's kid looks up to them down the road because like they changed the world. Mm -hmm. um, you hear these stories of people that did so much good for society being pretty awful parents. Right. It's not surprising because like you're constantly doing that thing. So there's no right or wrong decision. The wrong decision where people get in trouble is where you lose self-awareness and you're no longer evaluating trade-offs because there's right. such a strong inertia to things that you care about that right. that momentum and that inertia can just start like, it's like a train going down the tracks with no brakes. Mm. So as long as you put the brakes on it and reevaluate, like mm. that's fine. I've worked with some Olympic athletes. This is like such a prime example. And when you're in an Olympic buildup, nothing else matters. Talk about tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. um, but there has to be regular pauses, especially the women athletes, because they only have so long to start a family. Um, so there just has to be, and there's no right or wrong answer. Some people, okay, I'm, I'm willing to take the risk and not try to get pregnant until I'm 40 after training really hard because I want to win a gold medal. Great. The person that has regrets is the person that just lets the inertia carry them and never really evaluates the trade-off. Mm -hmm. So like maybe the theme of this whole segment could be um, like self-awareness over balance. Right. Don't strive for balance, especially like if you really care about what you're doing and you're wired to like be the best, trying to be balanced probably isn't going to work for you. You're just going to end up judging yourself for not being great at any one thing. So it's okay to go all in on the things that you care about. Just make sure that you're not getting swept by the inertia and understand that those priorities can change over time. Um, in reporting for my second book, The Passion Paradox, so many of the phenomenal performers that my co-author and I reported out, if you zoom in at any one point of their life, they don't look very balanced at all. Mm -hmm. But if you zoom out and look at their life over 40 years, 
they're super balanced. Mm-hmm. So like they master the art of being fully present for and going all in on the things that they care about and knowing when that season's over and it's time to shift. I think that's smart because I think a lot of times doctors who have multiple interests over a course of a career actually do better. So, you know, I started with family medicine. I was everything, nursing home, inpatient, little kids, old people. Switching to lifestyle medicine really made a big difference in that burnout component. Not necessarily had burnout, but I was certainly getting tired of the whole drum, people not getting better, just more medication. But I think that's a big part. You're, you were exactly right. I think balance is a bad word, but it's like you're, it's almost like you swing and it's a pendulum effect. And sometimes the pendulum swinging big, sometimes it's swinging small. Um, interesting. So you have a few things, stress plus rest equal growth. So that's kind of what you were talking about, right? Yeah, I, that's, that's probably the most popular thing from the first book is this, um, this thing that my co-author and I call the growth equation, which is stress plus rest equals growth. And it's just that. Um, if you want to make uh, a muscle in the body get stronger, you have to stress it at the right dose and then let it rest and recover, and then it gets stronger. Um, if you apply too much stress without enough rest, you get injured. And if you don't apply enough stress, the muscle doesn't grow. So it's the right amount of stress followed by the right amount of rest equals growth. In in exercise science, um, this is called progressive overload or periodization. And it is the gold standard way for training. Um, What's fascinating is that the brain works very, I mean, the brain is the body. So if you think of the brain as a muscle, the brain works the same way. Um, So the way that you develop uh, creative capacity, intellectual capacity, even research shows emotional capacity is very much the same. You have to stress yourself. So take on challenges that make you uncomfortable, rest and recover from those challenges. And that's how you get better. Um, this works on both very small micro time cycles, as well as more macro ones. So the example I love for micro is the vast majority of creative thoughts don't occur when we're actually doing the work. They occur when we're like in the shower or on a walk. So if you think about it, that's just stress plus rest equals growth. Like you throw yourself into the work, that's the stress. And then you step away, you shower, you take a nap, you exercise, your brain is resting. And then growth is like you have the aha insight. And then on a much longer horizon, as we grow in our careers, we take on challenges. They seem impossible we get through them sometimes with a lot of help. And then we come out the other side, generally after a period of rest and reflection, wiser and more able to take on the next challenge. Um, So this is how you progress as a runner. It's how you progress as a weightlifter. It's how you progress as a leader, as a physician, as a writer. Um, It's funny, this is not a part of the book and by no means am I or my co-author a relationship expert, but whenever I talk to large groups, Um, someone always comes up to me after like stress plus rest equals growth. Like this is exactly how relationships develop. Um, Because like you take on things together as a couple. And if you don't ever take on challenges, it's just complacency and it gets boring. But if you're constantly taking on challenges and there's no time to like reflect as a unit after, that also tends not to work out great. Um, So the way that relationships grow is you go through challenges together, you barely get through then you rest and recover, and then you gain the strength and resilience to take on greater levels of challenge. Um, So I'm like, I am, as I said at the beginning about bro science, I am so against 
these like panacea, you know, take this pill and everything in your life will be fine. There are really only two things that I'm comfortable saying are universal. The first is stress plus rest equals growth. There's nothing that I've come across that I can't apply it to. And then the second is that moving your body regularly really is like the ultimate panacea cure for lots of things. And I, I would have to add nutrition as well yes. <laughs> to nutrition. fuel your body. <laughs> yeah. So, so maybe we put nutrition and movement together. It's like yeah. a cycle, like energy it's in, energy feeding, out. Feeding your body. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, motion, what is it? Uh, motion is lotion for your body and rest is rest or something like that. <laughs> I heard Not that, rest but... in the sense of sleep, but yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. But going back to what you were saying earlier, um, you, you know, you're saying you have to push yourself just outside that comfort zone. So a lot of people have a fear of failure, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this is what inhibits a lot of growth for a lot of people, even people who are parents, right? I see this as a parenting tool as well, because you have to push yourself to be maybe a little outside your comfort zone of what, you know, just let your kid have what they want, but you have to be a little uncomfortable and say no and set boundaries and be the parent but I, I have a lot of conversations with patients about parenting. Yeah. <laughs> and, this, is, this is such a parenting thing for sure. Oh, it's so very, very, and, and be an example to your kids about how to push yourself. So how do you help someone coach someone to step outside that comfort zone? Because I see that too as, as my patients who come to me asking for help and they're like, but I've always taken medicine. Isn't that what I need to do? And it's this dogma that they believe, but how do you help them? you know, shed the blinders and say, it's okay to step outside the comfort zone. You're going to be okay. It's better for you. So the, there's a couple of ways. So when you're in the gym, it's really easy to gauge this because you start with a 10 pound weight and then you go up to 15 and then 20. And if 20 is too heavy, you go back to 15. Most other areas of life, it's not so straightforward. So the way that I like to think of it is a just manageable challenge or something that's like a seven out of 10. So if a one out of 10 is you could do it in your sleep, you're going through the motions. And a 10 out of 10 is you're up in the middle of the night with anxiety about it. You want to be a seven. So something that arouses you and that you really have to focus on and there's a chance that you'll fail, but something that's not keeping you up at night with anxiety because too much stress, as we said, that's not good either. Right. Um, the other way that I like to think about it is if you get really particular with someone, you say, here's an area of your life that you want to grow in. Let's talk about where you are now and let's talk about where you want to go. And then you just say, what's the next logical step? Most mm -hmm. people know. Mm -hmm. And for some people, you know, in your practice, the next logical step might not be getting off meds. It might be, well, first I'm going to change my diet and then doc, like, is there any way that I can take like 10 milligrams instead of 20 and see how I feel? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's very like self-driven, but most people, again, you know, and all it takes is 20 minutes, not even of space to say, let's, let's pick the particular area of my life. Cause it's very specific. Here's where I am. Here's where I want to go. Mm -hmm. What's the next step I need to take. And then you can get into, well, if that's hard and scary, what are the support structures in place that are going to make it feel safe for me to do it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, that's very similar. So we, I typically advise patients to, you know, first of all, you have to show them that there's actually a different future than what they think or believe is going to be there. Well, there is reality. You keep going with your diabetes, your high risk for heart disease, heart attack, stroke, that type of thing. but if we change our diet, move our bodies, change things spiritually, mentally, you know, emotionally, and just a little bit of a tweak 
it's really cool to see this hope arise. And I, that's what I call it. I'd almost say like the growth brings more hope and hope really pushes people or pulls people, I guess, to. Yeah. You create like a very positive cycle where like you see positive feedback and then you're willing to take like a greater level of risk. And I completely agree on parenting. Um, the, the cover story in the Atlantic magazine, I just read it on the internet the other day was about like the increase of rates in anxiety in really young kids Hmm. and the that's multifaceted what could be causing it but one um quite strong hypothesis is just um parents basically from a very young age shielding kids from um discomfort right and again in order to grow you need discomfort um but it's hard i caught myself as a little aside this morning so we have a two-year-old theo and um you'll like this every day I start off my day with like a smoothie that has spinach and banana and vegan protein powder and flax. (laughs) I'm very much like, I want to get all the good things in um, to start the day. And it's probably does just as much like for my like psychosomatic as my body, but it's all good. Anyways, (laughs) my son hates the sound of the blender. And today I caught myself. I'm like, okay, Theo, like you can go in the other room. And then I'm like, no, like you can't go in the other room. I'm like, Theo, it's going to be loud. It's going to be okay. You can hold my hand if you want, but like, let's listen to the loud blender. And then we started singing a song like to the blender is like the drum. Um, And that's like, that's the Atlantic article made me like so cognizant that for parents, of course, we want to minimize discomfort and protect our kids, but we take all these baby steps. And then what ends up happening is you create someone that is not able to deal with uncertainty and the hardships of like this human existence out in the world. Right. Absolutely. And I, it's really interesting. I would love to see a study on children of military families. And um, cause my husband was active duty for eight years and then I was active duty um, at different times. So we we're at different times and these kids are pushed and pulled and forced into uncomfortable social situations on a regular basis. I'd be curious to see the resilience and their anxiety, even though they're stressful uh, components. I don't know if you're familiar with any military um, studies or you worked with anybody like that. No, but that would be really, it'd be interesting to try to dial in that particular factor, right? Because there are all these other hypotheses, like increased Mm -hmm. screen time, um, oh. a more polarized political environment. There's like all these factors that could be leading to it, but that'd be a neat way to isolate mm-hmm. this notion of like um, coddling or like protecting. Right. There's no coddling. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I was active duty, um, I was stationed at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia and I had a mom. And so we had to do like pre-deployment physicals and say, you're okay to go. She had a four month old baby and she was leaving. She got a 24 hour notice. She's going to Afghanistan for a year. And, um, for me, it just broke my heart. And so we both cried together. <laughs> so, um, but I think about this baby, you know, she's going to spend a year without her mama and the mom too. I mean, it's just, it's to me, and I was gone, you know, months on end when I went to the Middle East with my kids and my poor husband had to deal with a 13 year old daughter. <laughs> oh, it's so funny stories. But you know, these, those are, those are really interesting pushes and pulls. Like you said, we can't shield our children against everything. You have to let them experience and it can but be there for them you know to catch yeah and again you might be more familiar with this research as me but like all these things are so nuanced because for that four month old at such a young age like there's also research that shows that adverse childhood experiences which you could say having your mom taken from you like having to be separated at four months 
that could have a like a larger effect causing down downstream problems yep um and so much of it's contextual because if the mom like if there's a supportive spouse and grandparents and the mom comes back and the mom is a hero then maybe that could end up different than if there's not a support system or god forbid something happens to the mom um so i think like this this stuff is all really complex and multifaceted yeah and, and it really makes you think about things too um I mean, obviously I'm, I'm a professional female. I was in the military, but I almost, I truly believe that most, both parents should not be active duty at the same time. Cause there's no, at least back then I've been out for almost 10 years now, but the, there was no safeguards to say that both parents wouldn't be deployed at once. And so, um, you know, Lord, God forbid that there was a war or something. I get that, but that, but that's really, that's really a, a tough situation but, Again, we get into the weeds there, so yeah. I can see where these conversations can go. Um, but just to kind of get back to maybe um, the passion paradox. So this is a, a little bit different book, and so can you tell us a little bit about why would you write about passion? First of all, what is passion? Can you describe? Because I, I have different feelings about the word of passion, but what mm-hmm. would you describe passion is, and why is it a paradox? Is it, people think it's a, a healthy thing, but you can also be, a, I think, a negative thing, but you tell me. <laughs> For sure. No, you're spot on. So the, the, the type of passion that we wrote about in the second book, The Passion Paradox, is um, it's a close cousin to it, but not like the romantic, sexual, erotic passion. Passion mm-hmm. more is this broad, enthusiastic zeal for something. So find and follow your passion. Well, that is, is a, like I said, is the top of the millennial generation. I'm 34, I think. Yeah, that all kind of blurs. As a 34-year-old, I grew up hearing, find and follow your passion, find and follow your passion. Hmm. But no one tells you what that means. No one tells you how to find your passion. It turns out you don't find a passion. You develop it. And like trying to think that you're going to find one just gets in the way. And no one tells you how to follow the pa- your passion. So um, the book, exp- like the book starts to pick it apart. And the, the, the two main myths that we, then I had no idea what these answers were. I was just really curious because I'm a driven person. Um, my drive has been great, but it's also gotten me in a lot of trouble. My co-author is the same. So like we don't write this stuff because we have it figured out. We write to figure this stuff out. Um, so this was very much just like self like reflection and turned into a book. Um, okay. So find your passion. So um, research shows that if you have this mindset that you're just magically going to find this thing that feels great from the outset, Mm. you 10 years down the road are more likely to be unhappy with what you're doing. What's Mm. fascinating is that research in romantic relationships shows basically the same thing, that people that think that there's a one and only soulmate for them are like four times more likely to end up single than someone that Mm. doesn't have that view. And the reason for that is because if you have this super high bar that you're going to find this sport or this career or this person that is absolutely perfect, then the minute something goes wrong, which normally happens, whether it's like a career or a relationship after like a week or two, (laughs) you're just going to tell yourself like, oh, I guess that's not for me. I guess that's not my passion. I guess that's not my soulmate. Whereas in the literature, the opposite of a soulmate theory of passion is what's called a development mindset of passion, which takes the approach that, hey, I'm gonna follow my interests. I'm gonna lower the bar from perfect to interesting. 
And when things go wrong at first, I'm going to ride it out. Now, if things are constantly going wrong, I'm going to quit. It's a bad job, bad relationship, whatever, bad, bad athletic fit for me. But just by lowering the bar, behavioral scientists have found from passion and perfect to interesting, people tend to end up five, 10 years down the road a lot happier in, in fits where they actually are passionate about their careers. So that's the first thing is eliminate, find your passion. Like I would never tell any young person to find their passion. I would say, be curious and follow your interests. Okay. And then let passion blossom out of an interest if it happens. And it sounds so subtle, but that switch makes a big difference. Cause again, passion sets this like thing off in your brain where it's gotta be great and perfect yeah. and exciting. Whereas interesting is just such a lower bar. Takes the um, pressure off. Yeah. And then the second part about it, follow your passion. So, um, Passion has these two very different textures. Um, the good kind of passion is called harmonious passion. And that's when you love an activity because you love doing the activity itself. So that is you love running because you love how running makes you feel. You love practicing medicine because you love the craft and you like the challenge and problem solving and helping people. Um, you love, uh, give me an example, like, uh, any job. You love writing because you love the, the, the challenge of communicating and writing. Mm -hmm. um, you love being a pastor or a rabbi or an imam because you love religious study. Great. Obsessive passion is when you're passionate about something because you love the external validation that you get from it. So this is, I love running because I like posting Instagram pictures and having people tell me how fast I am. Or I like being a doctor because I like being able to tell my relatives, well, I'm an MD. Or I like being a spiritual leader because all these people look up to me. Mm. So the former, when you love something because you actually like the activity itself, that is associated with long-term performance um, and overall life satisfaction. The latter, obsessive passion, when you start to like something, not because you like the activity, but because you like the external validation you get from it, that becomes associated with depression, anxiety, burnout, and cheating. Um, so one example of obsessive passion, it's a very um, known story, is Lance Armstrong. Yeah. So talk about someone whose entire self-worth and ego got caught up in what they do. And then when their performance started suffering, they did anything to close that gap. So that's very obsessive passion. Now these things, it's not, um, it's not binary. I've, I've yet to meet someone that is truly harmoniously passionate. Mm. Like we're human beings, we evolved as social animals, feedback, success, having people like us, all that stuff is in our DNA. Right. Um, so the advice that I give to myself and to people that I coach is you just want 51% of your passion to be harmonious at any given time. Mm -hmm. If it's more, great, but just 51%. Um, because otherwise what happens, and I alluded to this with the Lance story, is your self-worth and your identity and your whole sense of being gets tied to the results of what you do. And if you have a good result, it's never enough. You always want more. And if mm -hmm. you have a bad result, it can be, it can feel like a complete attack on yourself. Mm. So that, that's the fundamental difference. It's great if you really care about something but do you care about it because you like the external validation that you get from it? Or do you care about it because you actually like doing the thing? And it's tricky. No one sets out to be obsessive, passionate, right. like almost everyone 
is loves an activity and then they start doing it a ton and then they get really good at it because they're doing it a lot. And then when you get good at something, people start telling you how great you are. And that's the thing to be careful about because it's once people start telling you how great you are, if you latch on to that, then that can become a rocky road. Wow. So <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, I mean, first of all, when I, when I think about when you're describing as obsessive passionate, I yeah. think this is someone who is obviously seeking um, something because there's a hole that needs to be filled. And for someone who has, um, you know, that's enjoying passion in the sense like practicing medicine, it is nice for me. Like when I get someone off medications, reverse diabetes, whatever, for me, I call it veggie crack. <laughs> so it's yeah, like, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I get you to eat more vegetables and eat better and exercise and you get better. And, um, and honestly, that would be fantastic because then you don't have to see me anymore. And I know that I can go to sleep and say that I, I, I literally have Yeah, so but I talk that. about, the, well, I'll let you go on, but I talk about this with my doctors a lot. That's yeah. not great. That's not? Well, no, because what happens if you do everything oh, no. right and the patient still doesn't get better? Well, then I'm okay with that because I know okay. I've done everything I can. That's so I, the thing. Yeah, I know. I know my limitations. How about that? So, yeah, I think over the years, that's what I, you know, I always tried to tell my my kids too is like, you know, know what you know and what you don't know. Yeah. So it's it's okay. And then those who don't want me to help them or I can't help, I'm like, I can't help everybody. Right. But I know and, I've done. Yeah. I can. And then on that, you know that you can, it's like, um, focus on the process, not the outcome. So the process Mm. is showing up, being present for your patient, walking the path with them, doing everything that you can to help them have a successful outcome. But if they don't, then you've done everything you could. And sometimes that's completely out of your control. So like the analogy in sport is easy. You could train your butt off for a marathon and do everything perfect. But if on race day, there's 30 mile per hour winds and hail, you're not going to run very fast. Right, right. You can do everything possible for a patient, but if that patient is in a social situation where they like they just have barriers that like you're constantly putting band-aids on and they're not gonna get better, then you can't take that as an attack on your own performance because you did everything, you focused on the process. And generally, if you focus on the process over time, outcomes tend to take care of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So you're exactly right. That process, so the, the, the beauty of the end product is what I would consider the veggie crack, but the process is also the veggie crack, right? So the process- Yeah, because you like the work. That's what yes, I tell everybody. Yes. So like the, the, the outcome, like, to sound like very Buddhist, like an outcome is just a concept. Mm. Like it doesn't exist. Like, oh, you sold this many books, like, or like this patient got better. It's like a thought and it's, it's real, but it's a concept. You don't spend your life doing outcomes. You're made aware of them and they either went well or they didn't. You spend your life, your existence doing the thing. So like might as well focus there. Um, Like the, and, and I fa- believe you me again, like I, if I shoot like 50% on the stuff that I like write about, <laughs> then it's a good day for me. So I struggle with this all the time as a writer, because in today's day and age, like I'm on Twitter, I get data on my book sales. Like you could get it every freaking hour if you want. So it's very <laughs> easy to get sucked into focusing on the outcome. And when I do, even on a really good day. So let's say that I release an essay or a story and it blows up on Twitter. It goes viral. Viral is probably not the right thing to say right <laughs> now. It's, 
it spreads widely. Right. Um, it's like eating peanut M&Ms. Like, oh, I'm checking my retweets and my likes and it feels great and I'm the man and everyone's reading this. And then at the end of that day, you feel exactly like you'd feel if you ate peanut M&Ms all day. You feel like crap. Whereas the days that I'm not paying attention to that stuff and I'm focused on actually writing and doing the work or researching or reading or communicating, uh -huh. those days I feel so much more nourished and whole. Uh -huh. And I think that this is true. I have not come across anyone in my research or in my coaching that can't say the same, but uh -huh. the outcomes in basking in that, it's like eating candy, uh -huh. but like the brown rice and the nourishing stuff, it's the process. And we live in a culture where there's all these things, our devices, metrics, dashboards, promotions, all these things that are telling us like, focus on me, external, external, external. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can be aware of it, realize those urges, but then actually focus on the, the, the process or the, mm -hmm. like the work itself that we like, mm -hmm. the better we'll feel. And the ironic thing is the better we'll perform. Because if you spend all day checking your Twitter guess what? Like you're not writing a great book. You're checking your Twitter all day. For that external validation. Yeah. But it's tricky. I mean, and especially like with the digital stuff, these things are set up to, um, to get oh. you to click. Oh yeah. Just like food and everything else. They, there's yeah. so many things trying to get your attention, but you, you said something too, that made me think of a couple of things. So when I have patients and I'm, you know, you can tell a patient, I can give you this medication. It'll control your blood sugars. Or I can talk to a patient and say, you can, or I could just say, oh, you could just eat a plant-based diet and you can get control of your blood sugars. Neither one of those are latching on to someone, but when I tell them about a story or I relate to them, the process, the journey of someone that they can relate to, they also get intrigued and passionate about a potential, their journey. So that's how I see it, right? Is I consider myself, I need to be a good storyteller, a good marketer for my patients so they can see that journey, that process. I'm selling the, the journey of getting to this moments of difference. I said, so now I'm present. Now I'm worried about saying outcomes. But I was like, it really is. It's a no, but, but like it, but moments. You, it's yeah, moments. But, but like the, and, and the outcome's good. Like that's what I, I we, we, we write in the book, like, um, it's like a mile marker. So outcome, like these concepts are important and outcome, outcomes matter. If you keep getting bad outcomes, that's a sign to maybe adjust your process. Mm -hmm. um, so setting a big goal and like striving for an outcome is great. It's just like you want to kind of forget about the goal after you set it and then focus on the thing in front of you. Mm, um, absolutely. Another way um, to think about this is he's probably my favorite um, like mental health researcher and psychologist, a guy named Stephen Hayes. So he yeah. created acceptance and commitment therapy, okay. um, which I've had my own struggle with mental illness and obsessive compulsive disorder. And this was the kind of um, therapy that like really resonated with me. And um, a big part of acceptance and commitment therapy is knowing your core values mm. and understanding the actions that underlie those core values. And then however you're feeling, whether you feel like crap or whether you feel great, act on those core values day in and day out. Mm -hmm. um, and those core values then become like, so if we really get meta and we think of like the ultimate project is our life, those core values become the process of like the race that is our life. And the more that we can show up and act in alignment with our core values, the more present, engaged we are in our life and the better any outcomes will be. Absolutely. So you're just basically aligning your actions with your purpose. 
but yeah. most I have patients and I had one very recently. Um, we had a long conversation and it really boiled down to at the end of it in tears saying, I don't have a purpose. And I'm just, it broke my heart. And so we spent some time describing and discussing that she does have a purpose as does every human on this earth. And so and that can come up for people. Yeah. And especially like if somebody is, you know, maybe experiencing depression um, mm -hmm. or anxiety or even just like a shitty day. Um, something that Stephen Hayes writes about that I think is so smart is if you are working with people or if, if, if you are feeling like purposeless, well, think of someone in your life that you really admire. Mm -hmm. And what are the qualities that you admire about that person? Mm. Well, then go live out those qualities. Mm. Um, cause I think that sometimes a purpose can put a little to, and, and we talk a lot about purpose and peak performance, so I'm mm -hmm. totally with you, but the more of it I like live and work with people in, in research, Sometimes a purpose can put a little too much pressure on people, like to have this grand purpose. Um, particularly if like you've never done any like self work or you're not mm -hmm. used to reflection. Mm -hmm. um, so I like to start at core values because like most people can come up with a list of a few things that they really value. It could be respect, it could be creativity, it could be family, it could be religion, it could be um, travel, like just things that are really important. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, it's kind of like passion versus interest. You know, you get your purpose from your core values, but um, there's just something about like a list of core values and then they can get very concrete. So like one of my core values is presence. Mm -hmm. And that sounds great, but, and it is great. But then like, what are the actions? So every night at 6.30, my phone is often in the other room. Because mm -hmm. if that doesn't happen, I'm not going to be present. So that is like a very concrete action that I can take and I can trace my own mood and affect directly to how well I execute on that. Mm. Um, so I'm a big fan of like, again, back to the process. Like if the process is here are my core values, here's how I want to live my life, then these are the actions I'm going to take. And some days I'm going to run the race really well and I'll feel great. And other days I'm going to run it really crappily and I won't, but that's like your training plan or your map. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, my, some of my patients feel so empty, though, or with the depression. There's, I didn't realize how much psychology was along with family medicine. <laughs> I should yeah. have studied some more psychology. Um, I think that's why you and I have such a, a high respect for Judd <laughs> Brewer, yeah. our, our common friend. Um, so what, I honestly just start with people just to say, can you name me three things that you're grateful for today? Because that will at least get us started. And yeah. um, so, in, and, you know, as, and I, I search out if they have a faith or something, but yeah, I really like, I'm going to read this book. I'm really excited about it. I'm always looking for something, other tool to add in my toolbox to help my patients. And that's fantastic. So I know we're running short on time and I so appreciate you. Um, yeah. Did you see, I sent you a little I, message. I can go to like 310. I just oh, I texted right. the person that I'm supposed <laughs> to talk to and said, oh, great. Yeah. This is great. I appreciate it. Um, what would be... So you're, you're a young person, you're top of millennials. I got three millennials. I think I have one Z. I don't know where that answer begins. Um, where do you, because you started this some years back. And so you're in your twenties, I'm assuming late twenties when that all the first book. Yeah. Or were 28 you? or yeah. 29. So for someone to have the wherefore or the awareness and the, um, 
I guess the foresight to see that this is a book that you know, you could help others. I mean, that's a lot. I think that for me, I, I think there's a fear for me to write a book because I would feel so like, here's my baby and here it is out there. So tell me, how do you prepare someone, even if they're going to prepare, not necessarily write a book, but to do something like they feel is, they feel driven and a good passion to, to do. How do you prepare for something like that? Because for, for others, I think there'd just be so much fear. They're like, I'm not doing So it. now now there's fear. It's funny. Like my third book oh. <laughs> that I'm like starting to work on, there's fear. The first book, there was no fear because I didn't expect anyone to read it. So I was literally, no, like it was like a book deal with a very small publisher. And I was just like, this is freaking awesome. Like someone's going to pay me a couple thousand dollars to like, write this and they're going to edit it for me. So I was just loving writing the book. Seriously. Like there was no expectation. It was the first book. I didn't think it was going to sell. I didn't even know what good sales meant. I was so naive and I wish I could go back there. And when I start to feel the fear, I try to go back there. So it's helpful for me because it puts a lot of pressure on me to be like, Oh, I need to write this book that this is like something I talk about with my own therapist. Like I need to write this book. That's like going to last and people are going to love and it's going to change their life. No, I don't. I just need to like work things out on the page and enjoy the process. And if it helps other people, great. That's a good byproduct. <laughs> and it ten- it's funny because I write a regular column for Outside Magazine. I do some essay writing for the New York Times. And whenever I write something and I like get into the mindset of like, I need to write this in a way that it's going to resonate with other people or is going to help other people, those stories never do well. Whenever I'm just like, this is a topic that I want to like explore. I'm just going to write. Everyone loves those. So the more that I realize like how I work and it's different for everyone, the best thing that I can do is like try to figure this stuff out for myself in a way that feels authentic and then publish. And if it helps out other people, awesome. It will lead to fun conversations like this. But if I go out with the mindset of, I want to write something that other people are going to like, that is not a good place to be for me. Right. I think that's probably, again, you're removing yourself from the external validation and just saying, I'm just going to enjoy the process of being curious and exploration. And other people probably have the same questions and wish they could explore. So you're just taking them down a path and a journey uh, with your book. I think that's fabulous. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess like, I don't know if I really answered your question. And then the other thing is just like, um, Yeah, I think that's it. Like the more, and, and it can, it's really for me and I'm just an N of one, but it, it's in the research too. The external validation thing is really tough because it, you know, as our common friend Judd would say, it, when you're really focused on achieving a certain result, it can be very contracting and narrowing, mm-hmm. right? Like yep. you get blinders. And even when I think about like, oh, is this book going to do well? It's like a tense feeling versus like being really curious about a topic. Uh or writing because you love writing that is very open and freeing Uh and most people feel better and perform better from a place of openness and freedom Uh than constriction and Uh i think internal drive and curiosity is associated with openness Uh and external drive and craving results and validation is associated with tightness i think this is a and so Judd and I, we did a podcast just about curiosity as a superpower. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think that's why I enjoy medicine so much. So I see into each individual patient as a book. And mm-hmm. so I'm just curious about what's in the book. 
And so when we start, when I'm reading the book and the book is understanding that I'm reading them and we're talking, that they become, it's that, that mutual um, joint relationship. And I think that's where we can become more successful as, as physicians or anybody with any relationship is when we're just looking at someone to say, what's the beauty inside of you? Mm. Where is that leading? And um, I just enjoy every book so much, regardless of how it ends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think that that's the beauty of, I, I, I love lifestyle men so much is because at the end of it, I, at the end of the night, I'm just like, that was so much fun. Even though we're still struggling with blood sugars or whatever, and they can't stop eating the M&Ms. It's like, that was so much fun. Yeah. It was a, it was a lot of fun, but wow. So any last bit of advice for these young millennials as they're entering? Well, hopefully it's not just young millennials. Young millennials, but- <laughs> no, no, but I really think, no, we all need help for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> but I really think um, an audience will resonate with someone because they see you moving through difficult times and someone. And so I really, I look at my, my children's generation and I, and I worry because you know, I was growing up in the, I was a teen in the eighties, man. We just, we didn't have the phones. We had to mm-hmm. chase our little sister off the landline because she was listening. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Well, you that's know? how I grew up too, right? Like yeah. I was, um, it was, I'm trying to think when I got my first cell phone, oh. I guess I was 16, but like, same thing. I remember like, like, calling like girls that I had a crush on when I was 13 and being like, I hope my mom doesn't pick up the phone. So I'm, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I, I worry about, you know, their children, like you guys having babies. I like, I don't even know what that would be like. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, well, anybody. So as someone who's thinking about really wanting to either strive for something and ha- any last advice besides reading your books and your articles, which are fantastic, one any bit of advice that you like to give that you find that it's a pretty common theme over everyone that you speak to that really resonates with the majority of people? I think that it's this, think of like stress plus rest equals growth is a really good one. Um, this notion of like external versus internal validation and that you're never going to be fully internal, but just pay attention to when you're reaching for candy, whether it's on social media or in your career or even in a relationship um mm-hmm. and just like note it and be like huh i'm reaching for candy like and it it's often not such an easy transition back to the internal stuff sometimes it's like a gentle or excuse me and not gentle it's like a stern nudge but just nudge yourself back to the process mm-hmm. um and then the last thing that's going to be a theme of my next book that is not so much in the first two, but I'm thinking about more and more, and particularly now with what's happening with the coronavirus, is just the importance of community and belonging um, in how we are so we are such a tribal species, and um, we did not evolve to be separate, and we did not evolve to be like individual selves. We evolved to be individuals in communities. Um, so just the importance of, this is like a whole other episode probably, but mm-hmm. like productivity is great, but if productivity crowds out community, it's probably not so great. Yeah. No. So fascinating. Like I love like social contagion and all this. I mean, there's so much there. Community is so very, very important. Oh yeah. Surround yourself wisely. And especially like for the productivity peak performing crowd, like 
don't make time for community. It's very mm -hmm. easy to just be work, 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 work. Mm -hmm. But community is just as nourishing as like the, the brown rice. <laughs> I love it. Do the brown rice at the end. Topped with some spinach or kale or something. <laughs> That's fabulous. Well, thank you, Brad, so much for such a lovely and delightful <laughs> conversation. We will definitely have to talk some more because I think we just... The yeah, we're, we're on the surface. But, um, just on the surface. It's great. Judd said that we'd hit it off. So our mutual <laughs> friend, Judd, um, he was right. Absolutely. And I'll have to text and say thank you. So, but thank you everyone for listening.